Crime Sad listeners, welcome back to another episode. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my partner in crime. Ricardo. Ricardo. That's what I go by now. Oh, okay. Ricardo. Richard. More more profound. (laughs) All right. So, Ricky, before we begin, I have a question for you. Okay. Can you explain to me how you get ad-free through our Patreon? It's pretty easy. It's like the easiest thing that you could ever do, honestly. Okay. Well, tell me. How's okay. it go? So basically you sign up. You give like a dollar, three dollars, whatever. There's a little link there that you basically click, and it's going to say, what do you listen to podcasts on? So you click like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, something like that. It's going to connect, and then magic happens, and then it's going to say, crime salad, ad-free. It's that easy? It's, it's pretty easy. All right. Well, that's pretty cool. Sometimes it's not so easy and the, the magic fails. Magic's not always great. But basically what happens there is they give you a link for the RSS so you can actually copy that. You go to like Apple Podcasts and then you put in uh, podcast by URL. So you'll just paste that link in, click follow, boom, done. And then you can listen to it just like any other podcast. So you don't have to do anything fancy. You don't have to go to like a website to listen. You can listen just the same way that you always would. So just on any platform that you're already listening to, besides Spotify, right? Spotify doesn't work. Yeah, not Spotify, because Spotify wants to do, like, their own thing eventually. But you can do it, like, Apple Podcasts, uh, Acast. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy. All right, awesome. So speaking of Patreon, we have five new patrons to shout out. Yeah. Five teen? Five. Oh. So, Ricky, go ahead and take it away. Rebecca, Samantha. Stephanie, Morgan, and Laura. Woo! You guys are awesome. Thank you guys so much for supporting this podcast. You know what we should get? We should get, like, those party whistles. Like, (laughs) Like New Year's, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Or we should, like, crunch some salad. (laughs) Guys, we have Patreon. We should really do that. Like celery sticks? Next week, we're going to eat celery sticks as we (laughs) shout out our Patreons. All right. Our patrons. Well, guess what? We have a really good case this week. We have a really interesting case. Oh, it's a good one. So, guys, buckle up. We're going to jump into this week's episode. Did you see or hang out with anyone at the time or anything like that? I mean, no, no. No one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's it's people walking by pretty much. And uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but, I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. 
I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. What about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, any, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. In this case, there's no moral about remembering to lock the door behind you. There's no advice on how to dress, where to go, or what to do to stay safe. In this case, 27-year-old Laura Giddings did everything right. She was friendly, compassionate, and caring towards her neighbor, a man a bit younger than her who everyone else thought was a bit too weird. Lauren joked that if he was dangerous, she would be the only one who was spared because she always treated him right and with kindness. But when she was found murdered during the summer of 2011, she couldn't have been more wrong. Lauren Teresa Giddings was born in the spring of 1984 and was the first daughter of three for Karen and Bill. Born and raised in Maryland, Lauren was known as Pumpkin by her grandpa, Lori to most others. She was full of life, love, and determination. Lauren's childhood home had been in the Giddings family for generations. It was a quaint home on 20 acres of unused farmland. It was about 20 miles southwest of downtown Baltimore. It was even closer to Thurgood Marshall Airport, something that Lauren's parents loved once she moved away for college. Growing up, the Giddings house was always busy. There were three young girls running around and lots of animals, including dogs, rabbits, peacocks, goats, turkeys, and even chinchillas. Being deeply religious people, Karen and Bill sent their daughters to St. Mary of the Mills, a Catholic school in Laurel, Maryland, from kindergarten to eighth grade. After that, Lauren went to Columbia's Athelton High School, while there, Lauren was high-spirited and active, playing on the school's softball and field hockey teams. The Giddings weren't a family of academics. Karen and Bill ran a very small business called Giddings Hauling and Trash Removal, where they delivered and removed trash bins to local construction sites. While Lauren respected her parents' hard work, she knew that she wanted a different life. When she was young, Lauren was sure that she was going to be a veterinarian. That lasted for a while, but as she grew up, her dreams shifted towards medicine more generally, and she thought she wanted to be a physician. Following her dreams, Lauren graduated from Athelton High School in 2002 and enrolled at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. Agnes Scott is a small liberal arts school for women located near Atlanta. Though she was sad to be away from her family, Lauren wasn't shy or afraid to be out on her own. She had always been fiercely independent and was ready to tackle college. Once enrolled, Lauren got to work on getting her degree in medicine. After taking a class in chemistry and science, though, Lauren began to feel like maybe it wasn't the path for her. 
she decided to switch fields and she began pursuing a degree in political science. Lauren excelled in her new field and was excited about the opportunities she would chase after college. She graduated in 2006 with her degree in political science and planned on staying in the area. She worked for a year at the National Center for Public Policy Research, a conservative think tank. After that, she got an internship at the Atlanta office of the law firm of King & Spalding, a large, national, multi-million dollar firm. She loved every minute of her time there, but she was dreaming big and knew that she had more to do. For Lauren, the sky was the limit. She talked about being a Supreme Court justice or even the first female president. She was going to do it all. To achieve these goals, she enrolled at Mercer University's School of Law in August 2008. Mercer University is located in Macon, Georgia, a town of about 91,000, about 80 miles south of Atlanta. Macon dubbed itself the heart of Georgia and Lauren loved it there. During the three years she spent at Mercer University getting her degree, Lauren joined the drinking run club called the Hash House Harriers. She loved to go to country and bluegrass shows and attended mass almost daily at St. Joseph Catholic Church, located only a few blocks away from her apartment. For her friends, Lauren organized monthly get-togethers she dubbed family dinners, mostly made up of her close circle of friends from her class of 2011, and her friends loved the special nights Lauren hosted for them. Many of her friends joked that Lauren was like the real-life Elle Woods from the movie Legally Blonde. She loved to get dressed up and did so every day. She was never without her makeup, fancy dresses, blonde hair done, and her high heels on. She had a one-eyed Pekingese poodle named Butterbean, and she was great at law. She aced all of her classes, and after graduating from Mercer, Lauren was determined to pass the Georgia State Bar on her first try. While at Mercer University, Lauren lived in a small apartment building just across the street from the Walter F. George School of Law. The complex was made up of two identical boxy two-story buildings, both painted in a basic beige color. The building was named Barrister's Hall and catered specifically to law students, given its close location to the school. Each building had eight apartments in it, and Lauren lived on the top floor with only one other apartment next to hers. For her two-bedroom apartment in a prime location next to her school, Lauren paid only $575 a month. Lauren used to say that the building and the unit looked like she was staying at a hotel. She joked with her mom that people would say she lived at La Quinta. Despite her jokes though, Lauren loved where she lived and her parents did too. It was in a relatively safe neighborhood named Coleman Hill, had a nice balcony and was next to a well-lit traveled street and also close to the school. Lauren had one neighbor on the second floor of her building, a fellow law student named Stephen McDaniel. Though their units were entirely separate, they did share an outdoor staircase and their balconies connected over the complex's small parking lot. Karen, Lauren's mom, had met Stephen as she was helping Lauren move in her first year at Mercer. Karen remembers that when Lauren said hello for the first time to her new neighbor as they passed in the hallway, Stephen jumped in a shocking surprise. 
He was clearly an incredibly shy guy and seemed a bit awkward. Lauren wasn't taken aback by his shyness at all. Like always, she just wanted to be a kind person. In the time that Lauren lived at Barrister's Hall, she was always friendly towards her strange, introverted neighbor. They would chat on the shared balcony, and Lauren would encourage him to loosen up and to have more fun because he never seemed to go out. His blinds were always drawn, and he kept quietly to himself. Stephen had moved into the apartment the same week that Lauren did and was also attending Mercer's Law School. He was a solitary man, but not necessarily a recluse. He shared Lauren's conservative values, and they both had joined Mercer's chapter of the Federalist Society while at school. In 2010 to 2011, Lauren's last year at Mercer, she was the president of the society, while Stephen was the vice president. Many thought that this dynamic worked surprisingly well because they were near total opposites. For as social, bubbly, and bright Lauren was, Stephen was quiet, kept his head down, and didn't want any attention. Though they were friends and colleagues, they weren't quite friends. In fact, Stephen didn't really seem to have any friends. Most seemed to see Stephen as strange and the near opposite of Lauren, but she still managed to get along with him. That's just who she was, someone who looked for the good in everyone. Her sister recalled that if anyone would joke about him and say something about him being dangerous because he was so quiet and odd, Lauren would nicely tell them, well, if he was dangerous, I'll be the only one who's safe. Lauren couldn't have been more wrong. Lauren Giddings graduated from Mercer University in May of 2011, and she was thrilled. After a bit of celebration of her achievement, she went right back to studying for the Georgia Bar Exam, which was scheduled for late July. Lauren was determined to pass on her first try. She wasn't going to let anything slow her down on her path to becoming a public defender. For weeks, Lauren and her friends, who were also studying for the Bar Exam, focused all of their efforts on that. But as the end of June grew closer, they needed a little break. On Friday, June 24th, 2011, Lauren decided to hit the town with some of her friends. A few of her classmates were performing downtown and they wanted to support them. They went to a bar called The Rookery before heading across the way to another bar called Bottoms Up. They had a wonderful, fun night. And rather than driving her old Mitsubishi back home, Lauren decided to be safe and crash at her friend's house that lived nearby. The next morning on Saturday, Lauren got up and decided to go to the Macon Country Club nearby to relax by the pool and swim. By 6.30 that night, she was ready to finally head back home to her apartment in Barristers Hall. She stopped by for some fast food, ate it in the car, and parked her 2004 Mitsubishi Galant in her normal parking spot in the apartment complex. Lauren's lease at her Barrister's Hall apartment was up at the end of the week, and she needed to spend some time packing it all up. Her dog, Butterbean, was staying with her family in Maryland in the meantime, and a friend had agreed to let her stay on the couch while she looked for a job and a more permanent place to live. By 10.30 that night, Lauren, done for the day, was on her computer sending an email to her boyfriend. 
She had been dating David Vandiver III, an Atlanta lawyer nearly 20 years older, since her internship at King & Spalding. He was away in California for the time being, and she often sent him email updates. In her email on June 25th, she wrote about how she loved being in Macon and Mercer and reflected on her time there. She also mentioned, just offhand and without any specific details, that she thought maybe someone broke into her apartment recently. Lauren didn't think much of it, though. She just wrote it off as some hoodlums. And that email was the last time that anyone heard from Lauren Teresa Giddings. By Wednesday, June 29, 2011, Katie O'Hare, one of Lauren's best friends since childhood, began to grow concerned that she hadn't heard from Lauren in days. Though they didn't always talk daily, it wasn't like Lauren to not get back to her. After she didn't respond, Katie decided to call, hoping that Lauren had just missed her message. Lauren's phone was turned off and went straight to voicemail. Katie then texted Lauren's sister to see if she had heard from her. She hadn't. Immediately, they knew something was horribly wrong. Lauren's friends and family began to grow worried as they desperately tried to get a hold of her. By late Wednesday night on the 29th, Lauren's family and close friends knew that they needed to reach out for help. Lauren's childhood friend Lori reported to Macon police that no one was able to get into contact with her and that they were worried about her safety. A police officer went to Barrister's Hall to check on Lauren. The door was still locked and nothing seemed out of place, so they left. A group of Lauren's friends from Mercer decided to take a closer look. They took her spare key out of where she hid it in a candle jar on her balcony and went inside. In all the commotion, Stephen McDaniels, who shared the balcony, came out of his unit to see what was going on. Lauren's friends asked if he knew anything about where she was, and he said no, and seemed to be just as distraught and confused by her disappearance as they were. Inside, Lauren's friends and Stephen looked around. There were no signs of a struggle or anything amiss. Lauren's keys, purse, and cell phone were all in her room, but there was no sign of Lauren. It wasn't like her to just leave her things behind. For days, Lauren's friends and family desperately tried to find answers of what had happened to her. Police, knowing that something was wrong, decided to expand their search to look for any evidence that could direct them to where she had gone. They learned that the security cameras at Barrister's Hall were fake, and the cameras of the neighboring areas didn't show anything useful. They brought in a crime lab team to take photos and videos of her apartment, hoping that those could give them some useful clues. While the crime lab team was taking photos in her unit, they noticed a terrible smell coming up from outside. The detectives on the case immediately recognized it. It was the smell of a decaying body. They attempted to follow the smell and continued the search of the complex. And on June 30th, five days after anyone had heard from her, it was just outside of her building, they found a horrific discovery. Inside a rollaway flip-top trash can, just below the balcony Lauren Giddings and Stephen McDaniel shared, was a human torso. Just a torso wrapped in plastic. The head, arms, and legs had all been sawn off. 
Investigators were later able to confirm with DNA that this was the torso of Lauren Giddings. She had been murdered and brutally dismembered. After finding Lauren's torso in the building, police knew that they needed to do a more thorough search of the complex and to talk to everyone in the building. In their search, they found a hacksaw hidden in a supply closet with traces of blood on it. Blood and DNA that was confirmed to be Lauren's. Police knew that someone in the building knew more about what happened to Lauren Giddings than they were letting on. They hoped that Stephen McDaniel could help shed some light on what happened to this promising young law student. During their questioning, Stephen made a strange confession. He admitted that a while back, he had illegally entered two apartments, not Lauren's, while the occupants were away and stolen one condom from each unit. Police were perplexed and suspicious. Given his confession, police decided to do a walkthrough of Stephen's apartment. Inside, they found several internet blog posts, allegedly written by Stephen, describing terrifying fantasies of violence and torture of women. They found several pairs of women's underwear stolen from other units. They found the packaging for a hacksaw, packaging that matched the one they had found in the hallway. And they found a master key that allowed Stephen to unlock any unit in the entire building. Though Stephen had played the surprised neighbor and grieving friend, crying in news interviews over the loss of Lauren, police were beginning to piece together what had happened, and Stephen McDaniel was their prime suspect. Stephen McDaniel had moved into the barrister's hall the same week as Lauren, but was a bit younger than her. In 2011, he was about to turn 26 years old. He was about six foot tall, skinny, and had a big, messy mane of curly brown hair that made him instantly recognizable. Stephen had gone to Mercer for his undergraduate degree as well, but then he was in the School of Business and Economics. Stephen's family knew him as one of the nicest, smartest people. He had grown up near Atlanta, and he never had a mean word to say about anyone. His co-workers and colleagues knew him as weird, but dependable as hell. Even though Stephen was painfully shy, he was a diligent, hard worker. Even though some joked that his weirdness made him seem dangerous, no one really believed that he was capable of murder. And no one thought that Lauren Giddings would be his victim, the one person in the school who was nice to him. Though Stephen maintained his innocence, the evidence was overwhelming. Stephen had illegally obtained a master key that would let him into Lauren's apartment. He had purchased the very same tool that was used to dismember her body. He had admitted to breaking and entering before and had written violent stories about harming women. Police knew that they had the man responsible for Lauren's death. On August 2nd, 2011, a month after her remains were found, Stephen McDaniel was charged with first-degree murder. For years, Stephen remained in jail as attorneys worked to build a defense in prosecution. In 2014, one week before he was scheduled to go to trial, Stephen agreed to a plea deal. 
he filed an allocution document where he described his account of Lauren's murder, finally admitting responsibility. The deal was made in exchange for removing a burglary charge and 30 counts of sexual exploitation of children, which were unrelated to Lauren's murder, but uncovered through their investigation. The deal also removed the possibility of the death sentence for Stephen. In his signed document, Stephen McDaniel detailed what had happened three years earlier on the night that he killed Lauren Giddings. On June 26, 2011, around 4.30 in the morning, Stephen had entered into Lauren's apartment wearing a mask and gloves. He had used his master key coming in through their shared balcony. Lauren was asleep in her bed. As he crept towards her in the dark, a floorboard creaked, waking her up. Seeing that someone was inside and presumably recognizing that it was her neighbor, Lauren, with a surprised calm in her voice, said, get the fuck out. Instead, Stephen leaped onto the bed and grabbed her throat, strangling her. For long minutes, Lauren struggled against Stephen. In her fight, they had tumbled from the bed to the floor, but Stephen had a strong grip on her. As she tried to fight him off, her legs had moved to under the bed, which made it all the harder for her to move or kick him off of her. As he attacked her, she managed to pull off his mask and say, Stephen, please stop. But Stephen didn't stop until he had strangled her to death. After he knew she was dead, he moved her lifeless body into the bathtub in her apartment. He then left quietly through the balcony and went back into his own unit. He had stayed there for the day before returning to Lauren's apartment around midnight on Sunday and used a hacksaw he had purchased to dismember her, sawing off her head, arms, and legs. He then placed her remains, except her torso, in black trash bags and deposited them in the dumpster on the law school's campus. Her torso he wrapped in multiple black trash bags and threw in the dumpster outside of the apartment complex. Stephen trusted that the garbage collection would come in time to take her remains to various landfills around the city, making it nearly impossible for them to find her body. But that day, the 30th of June, two police cars had parked right in front of the trash can, making it too difficult for the garbage truck to get to. Because of this, at least some of Lauren's remains were found by police and eventually returned to the Giddings to be cremated. The rest of Lauren's body was never found. In his plea, Stephen wrote that he did not sexually accost Lauren at all. He wrote that he knew what he did was very wrong, saying that Lauren was his best friend. He wrote that he was extremely sorry and that he doesn't expect her family or her friends to ever forgive him for what he did. Despite his remorse, Lauren's family cannot understand why someone who claimed to have cared for Lauren could have done this to her. Some speculate that Stephen killed her precisely because Lauren was someone who was the nicest to him, thinking that in his mind there was some twisted love affair between them. Others speculate that it was because Lauren was getting ready to leave that Stephen snapped he couldn't let her go. Stephen McDaniel, after signing his plea deal, was sentenced to life in prison. 
He will be eligible for parole in 2041, but it seems very unlikely that he will ever be released. In June, it marked 10 years since Lauren Giddings was murdered, a fact that their family cannot believe. The Giddings believe there's more to what happened to Lauren that Stephen isn't sharing, secrets he'll probably never confess. But they try not to dwell on how her life ended and focus on the beautiful light that she was in the 27 years she was here. A pink bench sits on Mercer's campus with a plaque bearing Lauren's name. Her friends and family host an annual run to raise money for a scholarship in her honor. Despite the enormity of their loss, the Giddings carry her legacy, love, and spirit with them every day. What's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? Why would anyone do this? You didn't hear anything? No. I... I just heard something. Maybe I could have helped. Okay, don't worry. Do you want to sit down for a second? Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. We will see you next week. Crime Salad is a Weird Salad production. Are you kidding me? That was perfect.